we are in this worship series all year long on being immersed into the biblical story. And today we're looking at the whole of Esther. And it's going to be really hard to look at the whole of Esther in 20 minutes, but we're going to do it together, okay? We're going to make it happen. We're going to look at the whole of Esther together. And I want to give a little bit of context to the book of Esther before I read the text I'm going to read for you today. Esther's story is pretty amazing. It reads like a great drama or a great television show that you might watch today. There's all sorts of change and role reversals and different things happening in this story, but I just want to mention a few of the main characters for you all as you hear the story I'm going to read for you out of Esther chapter 4 today. Some of the main characters in this story are King Ahasuerus, and he is king over Persia. Sorry, I should back up just one second. This is a story about Jewish people living in Persia. There was a time and a season in the history of Judaism where the people were pulled out of Israel. They were enforced into slavery and had to live into Persia. And when those people could return back to Israel and to Jerusalem, they did that. But some people remained in Persia. Some Jewish people remained in Persia. And this is the story about these Jewish people that remained in Persia after some had returned back to Israel and back to Jerusalem and rebuilt that land after it had been destroyed. This is the story about those Jewish people living in Persia. The king of that time is King Ahasuerus, who lived in Persia. And then there was a handful of other characters in the story that are very important. Haman was the king's right hand at the time. He was the king's most important advisor. And then uh, at the very beginning of the story, Queen Vashti, she is deposed from being queen. So King Ahasuerus wants to find a new queen and has all these beautiful women coming to the temple, to the courts, and he selects from them Esther, which the book is named after. And she is Jewish. She's one of those Jewish remnants living in Persia. And her cousin, Mordecai, is this kind of ragamuffin character in the story. He's in strange places and doing strange things and is doing some very strange Jewish traditions like throwing sackcloth and ashes all over himself. He's a very odd character. And yet, at the end of the story, he gets elevated and some of the major role reversals take place because of who Mordecai is. So those are some of the main characters of the story of Esther. The king, Haman, Esther, Mordecai, if you look at it, it reads really easily. You could read this whole book quite quickly because it just feels like a television show. That's a bit of the context. And the place of Esther in the history of biblical interpretation is really interesting. I just want to mention two things quickly before we look at Esther chapter 4. One is that God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. Isn't that interesting? The words God does not appear in the book of Esther at all. And so people have thought for thousands of years, well, if the Bible is supposed to be about God, then what is Esther doing in the Bible if the word God does not appear in the book of Esther? And so, honestly, people have been fighting over this for thousands of years. And not only have they been fighting about it, some Christian communities have taken it away. Some other Christian communities have kept it in. We keep it in. It's part of our biblical canon. Martin Luther was one of those Christians that did not want Esther to be in the biblical canon. And he disliked this book very much. And he disliked it for a few reasons. One, because God was not in it. And then two, because he felt like it was too Jewish of a story. And sadly, as one of the reformers, Martin Luther wrote a great deal about how much he disliked Esther. So much so that it inflamed anti-Semitism. 
and it really left a really poor legacy for many Christians that came afterwards that Esther became a text that was used to inflame anti-Semitism. So if you read it, you'll, you'll understand why that is a part of the story and why that's a part of Martin Luther's interpretive history of the book of Esther. Okay, there's a bit of context. There's a bit of history of interpretation for you all, okay, too? Now we're going to look at Esther chapter 4, and I wanted to read verses 9 through 17, if that's all right with you all. Let me open it up. All right, you can put it on the screens. Listen to God's word. Hatach. Sorry, Hatach, I didn't explain who Hatach is. Hatach was another of the king's advisors. And Mordecai hears, overhears Haman. And Haman has decided that he wants to kill all of the Jews in Persia, commit genocide, this horrible thing. The king accepts Haman's idea and decides that, yes, he will commit genocide and kill all of the Jews living in Persia. Mordecai overhears this, and then he tells Hatach, and, or no, he doesn't tell Hatach yet. And then Hatach is going to go to Esther and now tell Esther about this. And so this is what we're going to hear Hatach and Esther have a conversation now. So Hatach now knows that the king's going to kill all of the Jews. Here's verse 9. Hatach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, what he had heard about Haman. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him a message from Mordecai saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. She was Jewish. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the gift of God's word. Join me in a word of prayer, friends. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's this famous story about a rabbi who's trying to explain to a Gentile why Esther is in the biblical canon. Like, why is this part of the Hebrew scriptures? And the rabbi begins to explain to this Gentile that there's this famous story, there's this famous story about 
Adolf Hitler. And one night, Adolf Hitler is asleep and he's dreaming. And while Adolf is dreaming, he meets a fortune teller in his dreams. And they talk about all sorts of things. And then at one point in the dream, the fortune teller tells Adolf Hitler that one day he's going to die on a Jewish holiday. Adolf gets very concerned and worried. And he says, oh no, I have to find out which holiday I'm going to die on so I can be really careful around those holidays. And he says to the fortune teller, which holiday will I die on? And the fortune teller says, it doesn't matter. Whatever day you die on will become a Jewish holiday. Thanks. Some of you laughed. Thank you. <laughs> I can't tell this joke, but the rabbi can tell this joke, right? This is his explanation for why Esther exists in the biblical canon. In some ways, Esther is dark humor. It is a joke. It jokes about really serious, heavy things and brings levity to these realities. It's a story about Jewish people living in a Gentile context. In such a heavy context, like things like genocide, that through humor, levity can help be what it's like to be a Jewish person living in a hostile Gentile context. Comedy and humor can help. This is the rabbi's explanation to this Gentile person. And as I've been thinking about comedy, as I've been looking at this text and thinking about Esther, I have been reminded of an interview I saw a few years ago by my favorite comedian, his name is Dave Chappelle. I'm sure some of you know Dave, and some of you probably dislike listening to Dave Chappelle, and for that, I can understand. He's much like that joke about the rabbi, very heavy, very intense, and talks about intense things. And in this interview, the interviewer was asking Dave if he had a good definition for what comedy is. And Dave kind of stumbled around for a minute, and then he said, I, I don't know if I have one, but I heard one recently that I really like, which is this. He said, comedy is about the reconciliation of paradox. The reconciliation of paradox. What he meant by that is that comedy so often presents to you paradox, absurd statements, ridiculous statements, to things that feel so absurd, yet we know underneath the absurdity there's a truth. And that truth underneath it can allow us to laugh to feel that moment of reconciliation, that laughter that we shared in this space, the laughter that maybe you shared on that screen. That's what comedy is about. Reconciliation of paradox. As an example, Dave was on Saturday Night Live last week, and he was giving the opening 15-minute monologue for Saturday Night Live, and he told the story about his great-grandfather, who himself was a slave, actually, in the South. And when he was freed as a slave, Dave's great-grandfather devoted himself, he said, to freeing other people, education, Jesus Christ. And it was his great-grandfather's name that became Dave's famous television show from 15 years ago. It's called The Chappelle Show. And The Chappelle Show was just re-released on Netflix a few weeks ago and on HBO Max. And Dave said, it's been sort of shocking to find out that he himself has not been compensated at all for the millions of watches for the last few weeks of it being released on Netflix and on HBO Max. Now, that's a very serious thing, right? Not being compensated for our labor. And it sort of reflected on the history of that truth, his great-grandfather's history, and now somehow Dave himself not being compensated fairly for labor. Dave laughed at it, and if you could see our faces now through our masks, 
that laughter would carry and we could laugh about it for just a moment because Dave was able to bring about a truth in the midst of what feels like an absurdity, not being compensated fairly for our wages. And that reconciliation of paradox is comedy. It's humor. Well, where is God in Esther, right? If the word God is not in Esther, where is God in Esther? I'd like to suggest today, God appears in a variety of different kinds of ways in Esther, and it's okay for Esther to be in the biblical canon. But one way I experience God in Esther is through comedy. I think God reconciles paradox in the story. And in those moments where we feel that tension being released and levity coming in, and maybe even a moment of laughter, we can experience the divine in that moment. Remember, it's a story about the Jewish people living in a hostile Gentile context. And so there are profound moments where these role reversals take place. And like I said, it's just like watching a TV show. And you know you have those moments where it's like, oh, this big reveal happens, and you start to laugh a little bit about it. You just can't believe that what just took place. There's a few of those instances that I'd like to consider and think about with you today from Esther. One is the statement that I read to you earlier in Esther chapter 4. Many people love this text about thinking about Perhaps this is just such a time as this for you being in royalty to push back against the injustices that are happening in this kingdom. Maybe God put you here just at this moment in time so that you could stand up against what's about to take place. Now, there's a sense in which that idea, even in and of itself, is a bit absurd. Esther herself wasn't placed there. It wasn't a passive tense reality She was forced into this role. She was forced into becoming queen. And so the text itself uses some passive language to say, maybe you found yourself to become queen. It's like, no, she didn't find herself to become queen. She was forced into becoming queen when all these women were paraded in front of the king. And it's absurd. And yet, perhaps there's a truth underneath it, behind it. And when the genocide stops as a result of her work, I think we can feel the levity coming in into the story in that time. There's another story in Esther that I think brings a ton of levity. It's also dark humor. You might find yourself laughing, actually, when you read the biblical passage. But Haman, who's this really really dark figure in Esther, the king's advisor, he's the one that comes up with this idea to, to commit genocide. He really dislikes Mordecai, so much so that he builds gallows that are 50 feet tall. A 50-foot structure back in the day must have been quite the architectural feat and engineering feat, okay? This is not just like building something that's 10 feet high, all right? This must have taken great means of wealth, great means of resources and people to accomplish this. And when all of this is exposed in front of the king and the king decides to turn the tables and to stop the genocide, and he turns around on Haman, then he ends up sending Haman to the very own gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai, and he ends up hanging on it. It's this horrible moment of absurdity and role reversal. And if you yourself were a Jewish person living in that context, it would feel like that joke, that joke at the very beginning, where things bring levity to that situation. Lastly, there's this story about Mordecai, Mordecai is this strange, bizarre character on the outside fringes of reality. But Mordecai himself, at the very end of the story, becomes the king's right hand. It's kind of this incredible role reversal, too. So Esther is filled with role reversal, 
And Esther is also filled with these moments of reconciliation, of paradox. Now for you all and for us, I mean, we aren't Jewish people living in a hostile Gentile context, right? So it's hard to relate to these stories sometimes. Yet I think we can all relate to feeling absurdities around us, right? Or political contexts, kings, principalities, doing bizarre things that feel frankly absurd. And yet, you know, like sometimes maybe we feel like Esther, like maybe we were given such a time as this to stand up and to fight back or to, to give back, to push back on injustice around us. And yeah, there's certainly a time for that. But there's also a truth of the Esther story too, which is that maybe we're going to find ourselves in hostile Gentile land for a long time. And it's not going to be such an immediate fix. Maybe there is going to be incremental fixes over long periods of time. And in the midst of that, how we may experience God is through humor and through laughter in those moments of levity where God's truth is revealed to God's people because the world around us is not going to claim onto God's truth. It's going to present some, frankly, absurd ideas. Some ideas that are going to feel paradoxical. They're going to feel threatening and hostile to a way of life. And so for us, I think it's okay to experience God in the midst of our laughter, in the midst of our laughter when there are absurd things taking place all around us. For those of you who read the email blast earlier this week, I shared just a snippet of a story that I want to share now. Um, about 15 years ago, I went on a mission trip to Walla Walla, Washington, and it was a wonderful experience. I went as a college student, and we spent an entire week there in Walla Walla, and you're probably wondering, what's in Walla Walla, Washington? Every apple you've ever eaten for the entire life of you lived in California was grown in Walla Walla, okay? It's apple orchard upon apple orchard upon apple orchard. It kind of feels like I-5 when you're out in the middle of California and there's all these orchards, you know, the almond orchards. It's the same thing there, but it's all apple trees. But it's beautiful land, rolling hills, rivers. It's just an amazing, exquisitely beautiful place. And we went there because there was this uh, farmer, his name was Brochi, and he had just this incredible life experience where he had started his own farm. He became very successful and became very wealthy right away. But he told us the story. We met him on the first night we were there. And he, and he devoted everything in his life to making as much money as he could. And then he ended up losing it all. Like he lost it all. Somehow he went into so much debt that he ended up going bankrupt because one year he had a bad year and he couldn't pay back all of his debts and he had to sell his house and everything and he was homeless for a while. And he had this moment with God where he just said, God, look, I... I'm going to devote myself to the biblical principles that I see in the text, and I'm going to make my business about that. So everything I get, the first 10% of whatever I make, my first fruits, are going to go back to the people that work with me. I'm going to send the first fruits of this part of the orchard back to the migrant farming communities that they came from in Mexico. It's like, I'm just not going to make this about me anymore. It's going to be about these people that I work with and their lives and their livelihoods. And so he made this kind of pact with God, this covenant with God. And that first year he started his orchard again, he turned a profit. And he kept turning profits, and he kept turning profits. And over a few years, he'd sent something like 15 to $20 million back to this migrant community in Mexico because he ended up making so much money as a farmer. And over time, he decided to reinvest into the migrant community there and built schools and built like 
a clinic and built affordable housing for people that were working there. It was just this incredible example of a Christian imagination of doing business in a certain kind of way built on biblical principles. And we were blessed to go be a part of that for a week. We planted trees in the orchard and we did a variety of different things. It was an amazing experience. And while we were there that week and we were in the house that we were staying in, in the room that we were worshiping in, there hung this photo of Jesus on the wall. There hung this photo of Jesus on the wall. I love this picture of Jesus. Now, obviously, all art is contextual, okay? It was probably made in the 1970s. It kind of looks like 1970s Jesus, you know? But what I love about it is so much of the images that we see of Jesus is Jesus like on the crucifix, all the hardship, all the difficulties. And no doubt that's a part of Jesus' ministry in his life. He himself was subject to the hostile Gentile world of his time, right? But imagine those times when it was him and the disciples hanging out. Do you think all they talked about was what their, all the hostility they experienced? Sure, but they probably laughed at it, much like that rabbi could laugh at it and make a joke about it. Like Jesus had to have had a deep and abiding sense of humor as he walked in the world because he knew his truth. Not just his truth, but he was truth, right? And so for all the paradoxes and the absurdities that existed around him, I'm sure he had a deep and abiding laugh and laughter that was infectious for the people who were around him. I love this image. I love this image of Jesus. And I think this is where God is in Esther. And this is where God can be in our world too. Certainly God can inform us through the biblical text and the principles to inform the world we live in, like that guy I met named Brochi who did that apple orchard. But there's also a way that we may not get from here to there so fast. And while we're from here to there, we might find ourselves laughing along the way. And God will be there with us in the laughter as we experience hostility, as we experience a variety of different absurdities and paradoxes around us. God will reconcile the paradox, my friends, and we can laugh together as a Christian community. And that's okay. God will be there in our laughter. Join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, my mind is on that image and how nice it is to see a face without a mask on laughing. Um, and I just wish that we could, have, we could have those kinds of encounters again together where we're close by one another, laughing and enjoying one another's fellowship and one another's community, much like thinking about Jesus being with his disciples in those rooms, eating meals together, laughing, even though they faced hostility. So Lord, for this time, where it feels like so much is hostile to our way of life, I pray, God, that your spirit would be with us, giving us a sense of levity and reflecting your truth into our lives and into this world, and that we might be able to just laugh a little bit, to feel that levity, and to know, God, that you are with us, even in the midst of hostility. Maybe this is a time to laugh and a time to find humor in the midst of absurd. Lord, lift us up. Bring that levity to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.